Chapter Two of the Box with the Broken Seals by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At just about the hour when Crawshay and Hobson were receiving the visit of Chief Downs in the Chicago Hotel, an English butler accepted with due respect the card of a very distinguished-looking and exceedingly well-turned-out caller at the big brownstone Beverly House in Riverside Drive, New York. "'Miss Beverly is just back from the hospital, sir,' the former announced. "'If you will come this way, I will see that your card is sent to her at once.' The caller, Mr. Jocelyn Thew, was the name upon the card, followed the servant across the white circular hall, with its banked-up profusion of hothouse flowers and its air of elegant emptiness into a somewhat austere but very dignified apartment, the walls of which were lined to the ceiling with books. "'I will let Miss Beverly have your card at once, sir,' the man promised him again, "'if you will be so kind as to take a seat for a few moments.' The visitor, left to himself, stood upon the hearthrug with his hands behind his back, waiting for news of the young lady whom he had come to visit. At first sight he certainly was a most prepossessing-looking person. His face, if a little hard, was distinguished by a strength which for the size of his features was somewhat surprising. His chin was like a piece of iron, and although his mouth had more sensitive and softer lines, his dark blue eyes and jet-black eyebrows completed a general impression of vigor and forcefulness. His figure was a little thin but lithe, and his movements showed all the suppleness of a man who has continued the pursuit of athletics into early middle life. His hair, only slightly streaked with gray, was thick and plentiful. His clothes were carefully chosen and well tailored. He had the air of a man used to mixing with the best people, to eating and drinking the best, to living in the best fashion recognizing nothing less as his due in life. Yet, as he stood there waiting for his visitor, listening intently for the sound of her footsteps outside, he permitted himself a moment of retrospection, and there was a gleam of very different things in his face, a touch almost of the savage in the clenched teeth and sudden tightening of the lips. One might have gathered that this man was living through a period of strain. The entrance of the young lady of the house, after a delay of about ten minutes, was noiseless and unannounced. Her visitor, however, was prepared for it. She came towards him with an air of pleasant inquiry in her very charming face, a young woman in the early twenties, of little more than medium height, with complexion inclined to be pale, deep gray eyes, and a profusion of dark brown, almost copper-colored hair. She carried herself delightfully, and her little smile of welcome was wonderfully attractive, although her deportment and manner were a little serious for her years. "'You wish to see me?' she asked. "'I am Miss Beverly, Miss Catherine Beverly.' "'Sometimes known as Sister Catherine,' her visitor remarked with a smile. "'More often than by my own name,' she assented. "'Do you come from the hospital?' He shook his head and glanced behind her, to be sure that the door was closed. "'Please do not think that my coming means any trouble, Miss Beverly,' he said. 
but if you look at me more closely, you will perhaps recognize me. You will perhaps remember a promise. He stepped a little forward from his position of obscurity to where the strong afternoon sunlight found its subdued way through the holland blinds. The politely interrogative smile faded from her lips. She seemed to pass through a moment of terror, a moment during which her thoughts were numbered. She sank into the chair which her visitor gravely held out for her, and by degrees she recovered her powers of speech. Forgive me, she begged. The name upon the card should have warned me, but I had no idea. I was not expecting a visit from you. Naturally, he acquiesced smoothly, and I beg you not to discompose yourself. My visit bodes you no harm, neither you nor anyone belonging to you. I was foolish, she confessed. I have been working overtime at the hospital lately. We have sent so many of our nurses to France. My nerves are not quite what they should be. He bowed sympathetically. His tone and demeanor were alike reassuring. I quite understand, he said. Still, some day or other, I suppose, you expected a visit from me. In a way, I certainly did, she admitted. You must let me know presently, please, exactly what I can do. Don't think, because I was startled to see you, that I wish to repudiate my debt. I have never ceased to be grateful to you for your wonderful behavior on that ghastly night. Please do not refer to it, he begged. Your brother, I hope, is well? He is well and doing famously, she replied. I suppose you know that he is in France? In France, he repeated. No, I had not heard. He joined the Canadian Flying Corps, she went on, and he got his wings almost at once. He finds the life out there wonderful. I never receive a letter from him, she concluded, her eyes growing very soft, that I do not feel a little thrill of gratitude to you. He bowed. That is very pleasant, he murmured, and now we come to the object of my visit. Your surmise was correct, that I have come to ask you to redeem your word. And you find me not only ready but anxious to do so, she told him earnestly. If it is a matter, pardon me, of money, you have only to say how much. If there is any other service you require, you have only to name it. You make things easy for me, he acknowledged, but I may add that it is only what I expected. The service which I have come to claim from you is one which is not capable of full explanation, but will cause you little inconvenience and less hardship. You will find it, without doubt, surprising. But I need not add that it will be entirely innocent in its character. Then there seems to be very little left, she declared smiling up at him from the depths of her chair, but to name it. I do wish you would sit down. Are you quite sure that you won't have some tea or something? He shook his head gravely and made no movement towards the chair which she had indicated. For some reason or other, notwithstanding her manifest encouragement, he seemed to wish to keep their interview on a purely formal basis. Let me repeat, he continued, that I shall offer you no comprehensive explanations, because they would not be truthful, nor are they altogether necessary. In ward number fourteen of your hospital, you have been so splendid a patroness that everyone calls St. Agnes your hospital. 
a serious operation was performed today upon an Englishman named Phillips. I remember hearing about it, she assented. That man is, I understand, very ill. He is so ill that he has but one wish left in life, Jocelyn Thew told her gravely. That wish is to die in England. Just as you are at the present moment in my debt for a certain service rendered, so I am in his. He has called upon me to pay. He has begged me to make all the arrangements for his immediate transportation to his native country. She nodded sympathetically. It is a very natural wish, she observed, so long as it does not endanger his life. It does not endanger his life, her visitor replied, because that is already forfeit. I come now to the condition which involves you, which explains my presence here this afternoon. It is also his earnest desire that you should attend him so far as London as his nurse. The look of vague apprehension, which had brought a questioning frown to Catherine Beverley's face, faded away. It was succeeded by an expression of blank and complete surprise. That I should nurse him? Should cross with him to London, she repeated? Why, I do not know this man Phillips. I never saw him in my life. I have not even been in Ward 14 since he was brought there. But he, Jocelyn Thew, explained, has seen you. He has been a visitor at your hospital before he was received there as a patient. He has received from various doctors wonderful accounts of your skill. Besides this, he is a superstitious man, and he has been very much impressed by the fact that you have never lost a patient. If you had been one of your own probationers, the question of a fee would have presented no difficulties, although he is personally, I believe, a poor man. As it is, however, his strange craving for your services has become a charge upon me. It is the most extraordinary request I have ever heard in my life, Catherine murmured. If I had ever seen or spoken to the man, I could have understood it better, but as it is, I find it impossible to understand. You must look upon it, Jocelyn Thew told her, as one of those strange fancies which comes sometimes to men who are living in the shadowland of approaching death. There is one material circumstance, however, which may make the suggestion even more disconcerting for you. The steamer upon which we hope to sail leaves at four o'clock tomorrow afternoon. The idea in this new aspect was so ludicrous that she simply laughed at him. My dear Mr. Jocelyn Thew, she exclaimed, you can't possibly be in earnest. You mean that you expect me to leave New York with less than twenty-four hours' notice and go all the way to London in attendance upon a stranger, especially in these awful times? Why, the thing isn't reasonable or possible. I have just consented to take the chairmanship of a committee to form field hospitals throughout the country, and... May I interrupt for one moment? Her visitor begged. The stream of words seemed to fall away from her lips. There was a touch of Jocelyn Thew's other manner, perhaps more than a touch. She looked at him, and she shivered. She had seen him look like that once before. Your attitude is perfectly reasonable, he continued, but on the other hand, I must ask you to carry your thoughts back some little time. I shall beg you to remember that I have a certain right to ask this or any other service from you. 
I admit it, she confessed hastily, but there is something so outlandish in this whole suggestion. There are a score of nurses in the hospital to any one of whom you are welcome, who are all much cleverer than I. What possible advantage to the man can it be, especially if he is seriously ill, to have a partially trained nurse with him when he might have the best in the world? I think he said, I mentioned, that it is not a matter for reasoning or argument. It is you who are required, and no one else. I may remind you, he went on, that this service is a very much smaller one than I might have asked of you, and, so far as you and I are concerned, it clears our debt. Clears our debt, she repeated. Forever. She closed her eyes for several moments. For some reason or other, this last reflection seemed to bring her no particular relief. When she opened them again, her decision was written in her face. I consent, of course, she acquiesced quietly. Is there anything more to tell me? Very little, he replied, only this. You should send your baggage on board the city of Boston as early as possible tomorrow morning. Every arrangement has been made for transporting Phillips in his bed, as he lies from the hospital to the boat. The doctor who has been in attendance will accompany him to England, but it is important that you should be at the hospital and should drive in the ambulance from there to the dock. I shall ask very little of you in the way of duplicity. What is necessary you will not, I think, refuse. You will be considered to have some former interest in Phillips to account for your voyage, and you will reconcile yourself to the fact that I shall not at any time approach the sick man or be known as an acquaintance of his on board the ship. His words disturbed her. She felt herself being drawn under the shadow of some mystery. There is something in all this, she said, which reminds me of the time when Richard was your protégé, the time when we met before. He leaned towards her, understanding very well what was in her mind. There is nothing criminal in this enterprise, even in my share of it, he assured her. What there is in it which necessitates secrecy is political, and that need not concern you. You see, he went on a little bitterly, I have changed my role. I am no longer the despair of the New York police. I am the quarry of a race of men who, if they could catch me, would not wait to arrest. That may happen even before we reach Liverpool. If it does, it will not affect you. Your duty is to stay with a dying man until he reaches the shelter of his home. You will leave him there, and you will be free of him and of me. So far as regards our two selves, she inquired, do we meet as strangers upon the steamer? He considered the matter for a few moments before answering. She felt another poignant thrill of recollection. He had looked at her like this just before he had bent his back to the task of saving her brother's life and liberty. Looked at her like this moment before the unsuspecting revolver had flashed from the pocket of his dress coat and had covered the man who had suddenly declared himself their foe. She felt her cheeks burn for a moment. There was something magnetic, curiously troublous, about his eyes and his faint smile. I cannot deny myself so much, he said. Even if our opportunities for meeting upon the steamer are few, I shall still have the pleasure of New York acquaintance 
with Miss Beverly. You need not be afraid, he went on. In this wonderful country of yours, the improbable frequently happens. I have before now visited at the houses of some whom you call your friends. Why not, she asked him. I should look upon it as the most natural thing in the world that we were acquainted. But why do you say your country? Are you not an American? He looked at her with a very faint smile, a smile which had nothing in it of pleasantness or mirth. I have so few secrets, he said. The only one which I elect to keep is the secret of my nationality. She raised her eyebrows. Then you can no longer, she observed, be considered what my brother and I once thought you, a man of mysteries. For, with your voice and accent, it is very certain that you are either English or American. If it affords you any further clue, then, he replied, let me confide in you that if there is one country in this world which I detest, it is England. One race of people who I abominate, it is the English. She showed her surprise frankly, but his manner encouraged no further confidence. She touched the bell, and he bowed over her fingers. My friend Phillips, he said, in formal accents, as the butler stood upon the threshold, will never live. I fear to offer you all the gratitude he feels, but you are doing a very kind and a very wonderful action, Miss Beverly, and one which I think will bring its own reward. He passed out of the room, leaving Catherine a prey to a curious tangle of emotions. She watched him almost feverishly until he had disappeared. Listen to his footsteps in the hall and the closing of the front door. Then she hurried to the window, watched him descend the row of steps, pass down the little drive and hail a taxicab. It was not until he was out of sight that she became in any way like herself. Then she broke into a little laugh. Heaven's alive, she exclaimed to herself. Now I have to find Aunt Molly and tell her that I'm going to Europe tomorrow with a perfect stranger. End of chapter 2